This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Artificial intelligence up against academic integrity. That's the subject of The Long View today. Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, joins us in studio this morning. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Looking forward to this conversation. Well, good, because there's going to be a lot more. I, this is just a small part of, of this thing about academic integrity and what it does, what it really means is what it does to teaching. Um, I put two, I used two articles here that I assume will be on the site. One is 538.com, which talks more specifically about education. And there's another one uh, that I think was in the Atlantic that looks at the broader issue about the relationship between humanities and, and science, which turns out to be an interesting issue. Okay. First of all, very simply, Chatbox is part of uh, something that you can go online and you can get Chatbox to write an essay uh, or a poem. They, they don't do symphonies, they'll tell you. And you give them a couple of prompts, and in very few minutes, they have them. So in preparation for today's thing, in, in the sense of thinking, maybe I don't have to do anything at all. <laughs> now, that's why I was doing it. I tested it. The first thing is that the site is so busy now that you get a delay, and they say you'll have to get back to us, which, from the teaching standpoint, sounds like the equivalent of uh, my dog ate my homework. Uh, but then I did go on, and I'll get back to what it showed in a Second, it, it showed about what it, it the essay it wrote was a short essay about what I would expect it. But here's the situation: this is a situation in which it's possible to develop a paper, say a term paper, a research paper that is probably of decent quality. By decent, I mean it can fool a lot of people, and it can it, it can be good enough that it could fool faculty members who were grading papers or any other teachers. Some people give it a grade as high as B+. There are some limits to it. It's a little bit vanilla in the way it is, but it, it can do it. And so if you don't want to write a paper and you generate it, so one of the concerns is since college teaching especially, but certainly even high school is so much based on writing and writing papers, what does that do to teaching? And you can come up with a parade of horribles. You can't write anymore. There's no way to do it. So, but there's a, there's a broader issue here about what the impact might be. But let's start with and, and what the response is. If you see Chatbox as a... Uh, uh, not blaming Chatbox, but if you see it as the opportunity to turn in a paper that somebody else writes. By the way, when I asked about the downside of Chatbox, Chatbox told me it's a violation of integrity to turn it in as if it's your own paper. So even Chatbox sees the critique. But you have someone write the paper. So how do you how do you handle that kind of thing? The most obvious, but turns out to be the weakest that people have tried to do, is what can you do to, to prohibit it? So some of the, the school systems I think New York City and maybe Seattle have prohibited from being on the site uh, to be access uh, through their own computers um, to the site. But it doesn't take long to figure out how you get around that if a student just doesn't have to use that or a faculty member or whatever else. So prohibition has got some significant limits. Somebody has developed a program that can that allegedly, I say allegedly because it's pretty new, can catch uh, plagiarism. cheaters, plagiarism <laughs> through that way. And it uses, it uses the AI algorithms against itself. Um, but as someone pointed out, this is, it's all that's going to be is a kind of war of escalation. Someone will come up with a more sophisticated measure and so on. Because for all kinds of good reasons, remember, this is not developed so that people can cheat. So, so that's, that's the first thing, prohibition. The second thing to think about is, um, to, to think more broadly, is, well, what can you do that's positive with, with uh, chat? Box. And some people, some teachers, there's a, uh, one teacher who teaches architecture, I think, and he uses Chatbox at the beginning of the semester to generate a whole series of drawings, I guess they're drawings, that the students would normally have to, it would take them forever to draw, and all there are is essentially teaching tools that the students then analyze through the rest of the semester. There's, there's those kinds of things. Um, I, 
academics have been trying to figure out a couple of things, one of which is if we can't assign papers in the old way anymore, how do we assess students? And um, one thing that some people have tried to do is to say, okay, can I develop some kind of assessment tool that that satisfies me about learning the material so so that I, one, can see what they learned and I can also get a sense of whether they really understand it or, or AI wrote it for them. Um, there's one person I know that's in the article that, uh, that, that does it. He says, it take 10 minutes a student. 10 minutes a student is maybe not too bad for a college faculty member. It's about what it takes to grade a paper. If you're a busy high school student or high school teacher, that's, that's really a lot of time. But other people have tried to figure out how to integrate these kinds of things into classroom material um, and, and, and what other things can we do. But giving up writing is moving in a direction that is... Um, in some ways counter to so much of what's been developed over the years, the assumptions about the, re the relationship between writing and critical thinking. And critical thinking is what college education is supposed to be about. I just saw a, a news clip uh, about cursive. You know, yes. kids writing, uh, you know, their names and writing things. And then the learning that is reinforced, you know, when you've got all these parts of your body working at the same yeah. time, you know? Well, the cursive battle, we could do many shows on the cursive yeah. battle. There's a, a, most, I think most schools don't teach cursive anymore. My my granddaughter does not learn cursive. Um, and the, the battle has to do with this kind of thing. It isn't so much that you learn how to loop your L's, which is what I uh, persistently did badly starting in the third grade, or yeah, I guess the third grade. The, the real issue is that process of producing knowledge as you you suggest it's like if you're writing a piece of music um, you're writing a score the fact that you're using your you know your a pen to do it may this is really a kind of older fight mm -hmm. now about the relationship between computers and, and knowledge so it's I mean this is all part of a very fraught uh, sort of situation so um, it's from a from a standpoint it makes teaching right now even more adventurous or more difficult depending on, on how you want to uh, how you want to say it yeah because you're trying to keep up with it uh, keep ahead of the students keep ahead well, of well that's right but if it's if it's only keeping ahead then part of the argument is if you're only trying to keep ahead you may be losing some of the benefits like the guy who who decides to use it to develop these um, these sketches as a teaching device. So, but the, one of the bigger issues here, and this is, you know, this is vaguer, but it's important, is the relationship between science and humanities. That some of this comes out of the sciences. I mean, this is basically data-driven. Um, and some people have argued, and that Atlantic article argues it, essentially, this is about, this is about a science approach. And it's another example of how humanities is getting devalued. There are fewer people taking humanities courses, fewer people ma major in it. And he talks about the traditional rivalry between science and two different spheres in the humanities. What he says, and it's not clear what he means, is that somehow if we do this right, and this doesn't get at how you stop cheating, but if you do it right, that there'll be a way that you can, that the science side will see that this collection of words, which is what this does, needs a discussion about meaning and values that continues to be very important and that there could be, excuse my French, a rapprochement uh, b between the two. So that's where we are. You're going to hear a whole lot about this. Mm -hmm. There's a piece today in the Star Advertising their opinion page about a guy who went on and had an, you know, had an essay written. It does some amazing stuff, for sure. And it can be a little scary. It scares me. Yeah, uh, yeah. Then again, I haven't taught for 10 years, and I don't plan on going back real soon. Yeah. Well, I guess, <laughs> yeah. Will, will this technology make us stupid? <laughs> us if down. we're not stupid already. <laughs> already yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think I am smarter than a fifth grader. But anyway. Well, yeah. Well, having a fifth grader for a granddaughter is sometimes yes, sometimes it puts no. Puts you in your place, yeah. yeah. Thank you 
so much. You're welcome. Take care. We've been talking to our contributing editor, Neil Milner. He joins us for our bi-weekly segment, The Long View. Check out the links to his uh, sources for this story on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Department of Transportation is stepping up efforts to reduce the number of people dying on our highways and roadways. We talked to DOT Director Ed Sniffen about a new year-long traffic safety survey that just launched this month. It's a way to use crowdsourcing to flag problem areas to reduce fatalities. Last year, 116 people died on our streets. Sniffen is focused on using all the tools possible to prevent the deaths. We also talked to Sniffen about how the DOT is working with other agencies to boost things like broadband capability across the islands. But we start with that public survey. The survey for us is to make sure that we can get ahead of things. In the past, we've always been trying to put out mitigations that were justified by major crash sites or fatality areas. We're trying to get away from that. We're trying to make sure that people don't get hit and don't die first before we start making adjustments. We've been using data to show us where there's high speeds along with high pedestrian and bicycle traffic. We've also been using data to find out where there's hard braking throughout our system so we can start mitigating issues before crashes occur. But now we're trying to crowdsource this. We know we don't see everything the public does. We're putting out these surveys and putting up our, our safety maps on our website so we can get more feedback from the public to see where we can address concerns from the public before crashes and fatalities occur. That's the whole intent of this. But this is really a, a long survey. I mean, you've got this survey open for the whole year. So the intent is for us to get that information in and act very quickly on it. But this is not for us to, to pull in the information, put it in a spreadsheet, put up a report, and do something at the end of this year. The intent is while those survey results are coming in, we're pulling that information out, sending our people out to take a look at those areas and trying to make adjustments to, to improve safety immediately. But this is then what driven by the events of the day? What this is driven by is, is a frustration that we still keep killing a bunch of people every year. Last year we had 116 fatalities. Um, and that was about the average or on par with the pre-COVID numbers. During COVID, um, the year before that, in 2021, there was 94 fatalities. Still a lot of people, but a lot a lot less than the normal. Before that, in 2020, we had 85. And before that, in 2019, we had 108. We had those numbers going downward, and it starts going up again. Those fatality numbers have to, have to go down. So we're, we're trying what we can to get as, as much information as we can to address those fatality numbers as quickly as possible, we can have people stop dying on our system. On the poly, we saw these barriers go up, you know, in the crosswalks, uh, just to try and get the drivers to slow down because you know we were running over too many pedestrians. Uh, and then you know you've got the raised crosswalks now, and there's some pushback over that. But the highway safety numbers show that those have actually decreased the number of fatalities. Correct? Absolutely. In those areas, the reason that we put up those stanchions, those white sticks. They're delineators. The reason we put them up is we needed to put something out very quickly to make sure that we catch the driver's attention, to make sure that there's some kind of action that the driver takes in those areas. When those tangents were up, the area felt tighter. People slowed down while they're going through those crosswalks. And that was in advance of the raised pedestrian crosswalks that we put in. When we put those raised crosswalks in, it was for two reasons. One was to make sure that we elevated the, the pedestrian in, in the driver's mind. And the other was to ensure that drivers that go through that area slow down every time they come to those intersections, come to those areas where we expect people to cross. Because of that, we have more controlled speed, we have a lot more yielding for pedestrians that are, are waiting to cross, and we've had no pedestrian crashes since the time we put them in. So the numbers are showing, they're, they're working tremendously. The thing is, we designed them to ensure that you can drive over those raised crosswalks at the speed limit. So I'm not asking anybody to slow down significantly in those areas. I'm just asking everybody to follow the law, follow the posted speed limit. 
And because of that, everyone's much safer. Well, I did happen to meet the gentleman who was killed in the, in the crosswalk there on the poly. I believe he was an you know, active community member. I don't believe he was. On, he might have been on the neighborhood board. You know, he was always good about wearing safety vests, and he was in the crosswalk, but he was just hit. You know, and, and so it's unfortunate, you know, when you've got people that are very safety-minded, and yet drivers just don't pay attention. I totally agree. And, and Captain, you bring up a really good point. You know, we throw around these numbers about the numbers of fatalities and the like because they're, they're available. They're, they're the numbers we use to justify the actions that we take. But you just pointed out something that's super important for everybody to understand. Every one of these numbers are person who is important to people in their, in their communities, like the individual you met. And I wish that we could, we could make sure we could tell those stories a lot more about the people who were affected, those that were killed, those, their families who were affected by that loss. And I think all of us would be a lot more mindful while driving through areas to make sure we keep everybody safe. I was surprised on a trip to San Francisco, I saw a sign by a traffic light at a crosswalk saying, you know, a 65-year-old woman was hit in this area at this intersection and it, it really kind of startled me that they were actually doing this and you know the, these are you know the city streets you know obviously your, your highways and and it, it might be a little bit different you know where you could put up signage but have we talked about doing anything like that you know i haven't because i, I never knew that um that we could put up signs like that but i'll definitely consider it I mean, especially if it catches people's attention about what potentially could happen if, if we start losing control and things well often when we drive by, you know, occasionally we'll see those roadside memorials. You know, people put up flowers or a, a cross, you know, they'll, they'll tie it to a, a guardrail or something. So you know that an accident happened there. But otherwise, you know, if you're driving by and, and there was a fatality the night before, you might not know that unless you see maybe some broken glass, but you won't really know what happened at that spot. Totally agree with you. Memorializing that to make sure everybody understands what happened in that area so that we're a little more cautious, I think that's tremendous. Well, what else are you folks uh, doing? Have you heard back on the uh, red light camera? Cameras. What's the latest on that? So red light cameras are working the way they should. We have three operational right now. The great thing is all of the camera locations that we had installed that are operational so far have seen reductions in the numbers of violations at every turn. So when we started off getting collecting the, the baseline data, we were averaging 10 to 12 violations per day. When we activated the red light cameras, got that educational portion to make sure we started issuing warnings rather than violations, we're about five to six per day. After we started the violation portion, then it's down to about two to three per day. So we're going in the right direction. Uh, and I'm hopeful that if we adjust uh, the mentality of drivers through those 10 intersections that we're going to be operating, I'm hopeful that we start adjusting that behavior through all of the intersections that we have throughout our state. The legislation that allows us to move forward with our photo enforcement at the intersections requires that we go through a two-year study first. So once we get through that two-year period, we'll send the report to the legislature recommending the go-forward action. And we're hopeful that the, the system will, will allow us to justify sending a recommendation requesting that we be allowed this opportunity statewide so we can put in these red light safety cameras at all the intersections we believe are potential issues for safety throughout the state. You know, switching gears on you, I know when we last talked, you had a project going down on the southern part of the Big Island, uh, putting in, you know, making improvements to the highway, and you were putting in broadband. We talked uh, recently with Sylvia Luke, who's going to be dogging broadband, and I know she said it's pretty complicated because we're talking multi-agencies, different pots of money. But what, what is DOT looking at as far as uh, broadband projects? Yeah, so we're moving forward with that project. We have eight communities that we had identified where we would take our new fiber to the intersections that are adjacent to those communities and then push that service into the communities itself, providing more infrastructure to those communities and also providing free service during the time frame for the pilot or for this project. We're still moving forward with those eight communities. Uh, we have three of them that have been connected so far. Moving forward on the fourth at this time, and we're working with Lieutenant Governor Luke to make sure that we're tying into the initiatives and efforts that she's pushing forward as well. One of the biggest reasons that we push forward on this project is to make sure that we could show the initiatives that could work, uh, show the potential barriers to broadband uh, implementation, and then show how we get through it. And right now, it's working out pretty well. I understand there's some discussion about broadband in public housing. Absolutely. So the first community that we worked with is Kalihi uh, because fiber was nearby. We wanted 
to make sure we took that fiber to our intersections and then push that broadband signal into the, the public housing community. So that was the first the first areas we lit up. In all of the communities, in all eight communities that we're looking at, we'll be tying into the public housing piece of portions as well. Are there housing projects on the Big Island, the neighbor islands? Yes. When we're starting to push forward, the, the two areas that we're looking at on the Big Island are the Puna District, where there's public housing, and Kau. Kau area mostly because it's so so remote and, and disconnected when we start looking at the at broadband and fiber. Okay. We're working on those. So we just started putting in fiber on Puna and we're going out to Kau to take a look at uh, what it would take to get fiber out there. Anything else that you want to share just on the broadband front or uh, DOT in general? Yeah, I think for DOT in general, we're looking at how we can use our transportation resources to affect all of the values and the goals of the state. So although connecting communities with broadband is not necessarily a DOT function, we make sure that we push our resources towards connecting all of our signals and ensuring that because those signals are adjacent to or, or running into communities, we push whatever resources we can into servicing the public, especially in their big needs. So in this case, from our perspective, and uh, we pushed this argument up to USDOT, during COVID, our job was to make sure we connected our people to the good services and opportunities that they deserve. During that time frame in COVID, when people were disconnected a bit uh, physically, the way they got their good services and opportunities was virtually using broadband. Some people just didn't have that access. We want to make sure we provide that, that additional highway, if you will, to all of our people in Hawaii. And of course, that highway is going to be used to connect up to other states or, or the mainland or, or to the world. So from our perspective, we're adding another leg to our mission. We want to make sure that we consider that every politician that ran this year ran on housing, and rightfully so. That's a big need for the state. So we're looking at how we can extend our DOT resources into incentivizing more housing and more affordable housing sooner. But that's how we're looking at things throughout. For food security, our harbors are looking at how we can reconnect the neighbor islands to make sure that uh, we can incentivize more food production by putting in more reefer space at the harbors, more shaded areas for their goods or their, their livestock, putting in more water uh, watering areas for cattle and the like. Small adjustments to our our transportation mission could potentially help significantly the other goals that we have throughout the state. Ed Sniffen, Governor Green's appointee, is a state transportation department director. He was talking about the efforts to boost broadband to reach those in public housing and also the major effort to reduce the number of road fatalities. And you can find links to that year-long traffic survey on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Chaminade University, committed to educating the next generation of leaders in Hawaii with its MBA and one-year MBA programs. Learn more at chaminade.edu. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we find out about the first flight of Iolani School's electric motor glider called Ehawk. We'll learn how the student project to build a flight-worthy aircraft came to fruition on the North Shore's Dillingham Airfield. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com.
Today we look at proposals that will be taken up this legislative session when it comes to Native Hawaiian issues. HBR's Kuvehi Rishi joins us in the studio this morning. So what's on tap? We've got the major issue, I'd say, this session builds on what lawmakers approved last year, the $600 million uh, for the State Department of Hawaiian Homelands to address that wait list, which at this point stands at a little more than 28,000 uh, Native Hawaiian beneficiaries. And one of the challenges with the way DHHL is set up as a state agency is that one under <coughs> one administration under Governor Ige came up with the plan for the money and now another Governor Green's appointee former Honolulu City Councilman Ikaika Anderson is now in charge of spending that money which may or may not line up with the former administration's plan and add to that this need to spend about uh, 179 million of that uh, by uh, the end of this fiscal year so June 30th. Uh, lawmakers at a recent uh, Ways and Means Committee hearing appeared seemingly frustrated that the new administration is sort of eyeing an extension and looking at deviating from the original plan uh, set up by uh, the former DHHL head, uh, William Ayla, and uh, that spending deadline, the revisiting that plan uh, put forth by the last administration uh, brought, I think, Moloka'i Senator Lynn DeCoit a little bit of frustration. Here's DeCoit. But what they're saying is you get the 600 million, you have sufficient funds to address that now because you're asking for the extension of those funds. You should have been able to burn those funds down really fast based on the priorities set by beneficiary consultation. So why haven't you guys done that? You cannot tell me you know what 2000 ready to roll. 2,000 waitlisters, 2,000 beneficiaries ready uh, to take on those units. So <clears throat> right now, uh, things are sort of up in the air. I, I did hear Senator uh, Dela Cruz sort of ask uh, Anderson, you know, are you willing to risk the $600 million, uh, by not having uh, this uh, new plan up and ready to go? So we should be hearing more on that throughout the session. Uh, DHHL is getting a little bit of help from legislators. We've seen a set of proposals from the House Native Hawaiian Affairs Caucus focused on helping DHHL spend that $600 million. So House Bill 567, for example, would include that extension request uh, they've asked for, uh, for, as well as a few fixes to help streamline development. These are things we often see for other developments in terms of affordable housing, for example, where uh, you uh, get an exemption for the uh, general excise tax and, and things like that. Representative Daniel Holt, co-chair of the Native Hawaiian Caucus, explains. Well, one of the bills has a bunch of different components in it, um, including, you know, exempting them from the general excise tax and the school impact fee requirements. Um, you know, those are big. Just, you know, whatever we can do to make these, uh, you know, units more affordable for, for our, you know, homesteaders, you know. So these, yeah. so, you know, although we're not trying to, you know, shortchange our school system, like I said, just trying to, you know, nip whatever corners we can to get as many units as possible yeah. out of this $600 million. So aside, aside from DHHL, uh, Holt's group also proposed creating an Office of Native Hawaiian Health within the Department of Health. This is something we've seen coming out of COVID, the need for uh, more integration uh, within those policies from the Department of Health with the Native Hawaiian community. And then on the Senate side, we've got about a dozen bills coming out of the Senate Native Hawaiian Caucus. Uh, some of it uh, seeks to address everything from getting the Department of Land and Natural Resources to help with restocking fish ponds. We know there's a growing amount of those statewide. Um, but also coming up with a plan, there's a proposal to come up with a plan to treat or handle Hawaiian burials or EV um, that may be impacted by coastal erosion. Interesting conversation when we hear about climate change. Uh, but the headliner will probably be the Office of Hawaiian Affairs getting a little help uh, with a bill, Senate Bill 736, to help streamline its development of Kaka'ako Makai. Uh, now, I think newly named Hakua uh, they've got nine parcels there. Uh, Senate Bill 736 would uh, allow them to develop residential units in that area, which currently is prohibited. It would also do things like raise the building height limits to allow for vertical and increase that maximum floor area. Uh, we should be hearing a lot more of that coming up. But on the non-caucus bill side of things, we've got a hearing tomorrow uh, on a couple of OHA election reform proposals aiming to do away with that at-large trustee category. Mm. And instead have trustees elected by their respective districts. So we should be hearing some testimony on that tomorrow at 1.
Yeah, but that uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh issue is, yeah, it's a, it's going to be a tough nut to crack because, uh, you know, they passed that law banning development, yet, you know, as part of that ceded land uh, settlement, uh, you know, what, what would work? Exactly, and the, so that Senate Bill 736 will definitely uh, be the, the forum for that discussion. It's not up for a hearing just yet, uh, but I'm sure uh, the Office of Wine Affairs is uh, trying to figure out their their um, side on this. Right, right, and then uh, no a word yet either on the confirmation hearings uh, for the cabinet uh, level folks, you know, Ikaika. We have not seen now the governor's message come through just yet. Um, word on the street is we, uh, they're looking at a sort of a 50-50 on the background in terms of supporting it. If they can get the votes, and we'll see some hearings um, coming up soon. Right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Kube. Thank you. We've been talking with a chair reporter, Kube Hirishi. She'll be tracking Native Point issues at the legislature. Look for her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Park rangers will be roaming Oahu's parks and beaches very soon. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Hi, Catherine. Hey, so, uh, yeah, this is a story uh, by one of your reporters, um, Kristen, who couldn't make Kirsten, it today. Kirsten mm-hmm. Downey. Yeah, I'm covering for Kirsten, and uh, but it's, it's a good one. And it's the city's Department of Parks and Recreation. And what they are going to do is they're going to launch a pilot program that's going to last for two years, uh, and it will deploy uh, five mobile rangers, park rangers, mobile meaning they move around. Um, the city has actually got one person already on the job and four others to be hired. Uh, the idea is that they'll go out uh, looking for illegal uh, commercial activity uh, in, on these city parks and beaches, of which we've had a history, a problem with that. And then uh, there'll be surprise visits, right? They're not going to know that they're going to come there so they can catch them in the act, if you will. Uh, their goal is to evaluate the trouble spots around Oahu and, and, and to look for patterns to try and prevent this stuff. Once uh, those two years are up, there will be a report on how things went and whether going forward there should be uh, permanent enforcement. Yeah, I mean, lots of folks are applauding this because, you know, finally, if they're, you know, all the complaints have been coming in that we're trying something different and trying to get our arms around this problem. Right. Kirsten did talk to the chair of the North Shore Neighborhood Board, for example, and, and said they've been plagued for decades of people leaving trash, uh, tense encounters with uh, locals versus the the commercial activity entrepreneurs. Uh, and what are we what kind of activity are we talking about? Well, quite a lot. Uh, paddle boarding and kayak rentals. Uh, tour buses, surf lessons, surfing, uh, snorkeling lessons as well. Food trucks, right? A food truck that shouldn't be where it is. Uh, wedding ceremonies, photo sessions, and then the one that I like, glomping, which I've never done, <laughs> but that that's uh, that's like camping, but it's glomping with a G, luxury camping. And so if you don't have the proper credentials, the proper permit, the proper authorization, then you should not be doing these activities. But it's difficult to to uh, police this, if you will. Yeah, and I think yeah, one of those glamping companies, uh, I think they had something on the news lately where a monk seal kind of cozied up to the tent and, and it made the news. And so people were like, wait a minute, what is this company doing exactly? <laughs> Clamping. Yes. <laughs> so the money, uh, it, we're aided with uh, by 800000 more than $800,000 in federal funds. That's from the American Rescue Plan Act. Laura Thielen, who heads uh, Honolulu Parks and Rec, says they're still working out the details. They're, they're looking to other places across the mainland to see how they have uh, deployed these kinds of systems. Uh, and there are a lot of questions uh, still to be settled. Will these will these rangers be armed? Um, are they are they primarily going to be there for educational purposes? In other words, you know, to catch someone and say, ah, you shouldn't be doing that. And um, are they going to have the power to, to issue citations? 
could they even take it further uh, and and have uh, you know the ability to issue criminal charges? Uh, and it, it it does seem like uh, Phelan was indicating that there might need to be a more permanent body with their own enforcement powers. Uh, HBD can't do everything. Remember, these are city and county uh, properties, right? Not state properties, not DLNR and, and, and so forth, Department of Land and Natural Resources. So these are the details, big ones to still be worked out. Oh, gosh. And, you know, over the years, we've seen so many complaints about these different companies, everything from aerial yoga hanging on the uh, on that movie <laughs> screen down there in Waikiki to, yeah. um, gosh, uh, you know, yoga on stand-up paddle boards, um, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, right. you, you worry about that because, you know, there's liability issue of some of these boot camps, uh, you know, uh, hang uh, things up by uh, trees and, okay, what if the tree branch mm-hmm. falls and, you know, it just goes on forever. Now, there has been resistance and you can guess who it's coming from. It's from the tour operators themselves and in Kirsten's report, she notes that some of them are, are, are good people. They're, they're, you know, following the rules, doing what's right. But some of these folks also raise, look, if you start cracking down on this, you're going to put people out of job. Your jobs are going to lose businesses. As you know, about 10 years ago, the city did move to eliminate, to prohibit, rather, commercial activity at Kailua Beach and mm-hmm. Kalama Beach. And that, that since has been expanded to a number of other places in the islands, and, and or rather on Oahu. And when that happens, whoever's doing their activity just goes and finds another place. But the, the problems do persist. So uh, get ready for It's not Walker, Texas Ranger. But you're going to see park rangers. It's not Chuck Norris, but uh, there will be people uh, roaming the beaches and parks. Yeah, sort of kind of Baywatch, but not really. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's All a right. better comparison. Yes, but thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Kevin. That was uh, editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. To read uh, Kirsten Downey's story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the immersive exhibition Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, Exploring the Human Connection to Nature. Now on view, details at honolulumuseum.org. This Friday, Hawaii Public Radio brings you a very special Road Stories episode you don't want to miss. Considering what I've been through, I don't feel that bad. Aloha, I'm Dave Lawrence, and this Friday, we're welcoming Ozzy Osbourne. He's up for four Grammys for his new Patient Number 9 album. We'll hear about his battle with Parkinson's disease, unusual home in England, and much more. On All Things Considered, this Friday afternoon, starting at 4, our special guest, Ozzy Osbourne, on member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Support for HPR comes from An Evening with David Sedaris. The humorist, comedian, and author is coming to the Kauai War Memorial Convention Hall in Lihue, Sunday, February 12th. Tickets at davidsedarishawaii.com. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. In today's Manu Minute, University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the native Akepa. A little bird told us that this honeycreeper is one of our host Patrick Hart's favorites. Hawaii Akepa are an endangered Hawaiian honeycreeper that are found only on the Big Island. As honeycreepers, they're descended from an original group of finches that found their way to Hawaii from Asia over five million years ago. They're very unusual bird in that the males are bright, almost fluorescent orange, like the color of a traffic pylon, while the females are grayish green with a wash of orange across their breast. Akepa are among the smallest of all honeycreepers, weighing only about 10 grams or a third of an ounce. In Hawaiian, Akepa means nimble and quick, which they use to their advantage as they forage high up in the canopy of ohia trees and use their crossed bill to pry open leaf buds in search of insects and spiders. Akepa were once common all over the Big Island, but today they're only found in old-growth ohia and koa forests above about 5,000 feet in elevation. 
below that, they can get bitten by mosquitoes that transmit avian malaria, and a single bite of a mosquito can mean death for one of these birds. Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge on the windward side of Hawaii Island is one of the best places to hear the pleasant, high-pitched trill of the males as they try to impress the wary females during breeding season. Akepa are also unusual in their obligate cavity nesters. Whereas most other honeycreepers build cup nests in the outer branches of trees, Akepa require natural cavities that only form in the trunks and limbs of the biggest and oldest ohia and koa trees. Because of this, the size of the Akepa population, estimated to be only about 10,000 birds, is also limited by the amount of high elevation, old growth forest that still exists on Hawaii. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. local news coverage on HPR. The world's largest volcano, Mauna Loa, has erupted for the first time in nearly 40 years. So there's no civil defense warnings, no public or police warnings at all. Mauna Loa eruptions have typically all started in Mokuaveo Veo Caldera, and then about half of them have moved into a rift zone, and that's exactly what we saw for this eruption. We have Big Island Mayor Mitch Roth on the line now. We've uh, been going out to our community, we've been educating our community, we've, we've been working with our partners. We've actually been doing that for the last couple of months and so we're in a pretty good sense of preparedness but you can never be too prepared. I wasn't frantic or anything like that because we were already kind of expecting it. I already had some things semi-packed because over time we've been told that it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We'd like to steer people towards the uh, Hawaii Civil Defense website. There's a hazard map. We get that information up very quickly. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org. The concept of Oahu's neighborhood board system was born during then-Mayor Frank Fossey's time. It was meant to boost civic engagement. Hard to believe, but 50 years have passed since voters gave the thumbs up to the system. We talked to Lloyd Yoninaka, executive secretary of the Neighborhood Commission, about this milestone. What is always on everyone's mind is participation. And anytime you have an opportunity to open another avenue to participate, you'd like to take advantage of it. And it's really based on the belief that the public has a right to access their government. And I think that's the beginning of the neighborhood boards. It was another avenue where the public could actually access their government. They could talk to some of the legislators. They could talk to the council members. They could talk to the representative for the governor or the mayor. And I think that is the basis of everything we do is that it should be open. It should be accessible. And I'm very happy to be at the place I'm at right now in terms of trying to expand that even more, trying to get the boards, as I always tell them, I need the boards to be more relevant. And this question of creating the system actually went to the voters, and they said, yes, we think this is a good idea. Yes. I don't remember voting for it, (laughs) (laughs) but apparently it was voted for by the voters, and it was overwhelming support, which is easy to understand, because any time government says we want to provide more access to everybody, I think the voters are very much in favor of that. And we have seen the boards expand because... As communities grow, right, there's more housing built, that the demands and the needs are are changing. What I think everyone should understand about the neighborhood board system is that it's a very fluid system. It may not move as quickly as you think or would like, may not expand as quickly as some people want it to, but at the same time, it does reflect what's happening in the community in terms of growth. We've increased boards over time, and as neighborhoods get bigger, they tend to have an opportunity to have more than one board because they're just 
a number of people there. And because I've covered so many meetings, I know that really each neighborhood board has its own personality, depending on the makeup. You know, some get very heated, some, you know, move very quickly, some are very efficient. I think the word is passionate. 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 (laughs) And you are correct. Every board is different. Every community is different. And while we say that and we believe that, there is a sense that every board and every community has a lot of things in common. That is just a reflection of who we are, where we are. And the way that this was set up originally, I believe that they had the department heads of the different agencies show up at the monthly meetings. And I understand there's going to be a little different change this year with Governor Josh Green coming in. From the city side, the the city continues to send representatives to all the boards, and they're usually a director or a deputy director. On the state side, while they used to send directors or deputy directors, I've been told that they will be changing that and replacing those people with public information officers from each department. I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. I'm not quite sure how many boards the information officers will have to cover individually if it's just one or more than one. How many boards do we have? We have 33 boards. They meet monthly? They meet once a month, yes. And you do have a really great website because you can go down and drill down in the directory, find out who are the members on your board, their contact numbers if you have an issue. But it really does set up a whole process of who you're going to call, right, if you have an issue. And that really kind of helps expedite things and maybe minimize frustration because at least you know where to go. If you just plug in nco.com, you'll get there. We try to be as open and transparent as possible in terms of access to the board members. So if you go to our site, you can find a board member from your area, and they have a contact information, either an email or a phone number. It also has all the information regarding meetings, when they happen, where they happen. And as you know, today we have so many meetings happening on a virtual site or hybrid site. So you can stay at home and log into your computer and click on the link and get to that meeting. But it's just important for everyone to understand that the boards are very accessible. Attending the meetings, contacting the people on the board is very, very easy. Now, there was a first because I believe the neighborhood board election process Wasn't the commission the first to go to all online voting? (laughs) As far as I know, I think we're the only entity in the state that does all online voting. While you still can get a paper ballot, our entire system is based on contacting you, giving you a code so you can log in and actually vote. And your code will direct you straight to your particular board. But that's a feather in your cap. You know, you tried something new and it worked. Yeah, it's a credit actually to our information and technology team at the city because it is their system to vote. But I also want to say that the boards themselves, especially during COVID, was fascinating to watch because while everyone stayed home, the board still wanted to meet. So they ventured into the Zoom WebEx realm and the virtual meetings. And they just went ahead, mistakes or not, good or bad, you know, you're on mute. I mean, we all know you're on mute, unmute yourself. But they were fearless in wanting to meet. And I think we learned a lot from that on how to run a meeting. I have to admit, I did go to a meeting in my neighborhood, and I looked up at the screen because there were lots of folks who were attending virtually, and there were their pets were attending too. We had cats <laughs> jump up on uh, laptops and things, so it was entertaining. It, it is entertaining. <laughs> it, it is uh, especially when <laughs> people forget the cameras on. Yes. <laughs> well, you've got an election coming up. You need candidates. You need people who are interested on serving on these boards. Yes, and Catherine, you are an excellent candidate. (laughs) I don't know about that, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) You are. In fact, I'm talking to the tech guy in the the room here, and he would be an excellent (laughs) candidate. We have about a little over 400 board members, and this year is an election year. Every odd number year is an election year. So while the regular elections are even number years, we're in odd. The candidates for, for these races, the application period is open right now, and it'll stay open until February 17th. So I would encourage everyone, check our website, get involved. This is an incredible way to be involved in your community. You can talk about any issue that is happening and is irrelevant to you. This is my plug to everybody. We all know somebody. We all know somebody that we always say, you should run for office, right? We always know somebody that's telling us they should do this, they should. We all know that person. That's the person we want. 
encourage them to run for neighborhood boards. How many openings do you have? Every seat is open, so it will be 410 or 415 Wow, everything seats. is up. Yeah, every uh, board member runs every two years. Again, the application period to be a candidate is open right now, so I'm just telling everyone I see, please fill out an application, go online, get the application, fill it out, and... Uh, run for a seat. I think it'll be worthwhile. You know, and many people do get in just to learn the process, learn, you know, what it's like to be around government officials and understand the difference between city and state. And many people do go on to run for elected office, you know, either at the city council or over at the state legislature. At times, we've been accused of being the breeding ground for politicians. But it's actually great because if you're interested in running for an elected office, such as a council member or a representative seat or something, the neighborhood boards are a great starting point because it gives you an idea of what it's like. And I think it's a great training ground. It gives you a wonderful opportunity to understand government, especially city government, on how it works, the permit process and the zoning laws and the issues that happen in, in every neighborhood, like feral chickens and homelessness. I tell people, yes, there are a lot of people that come from the boards that become elected officials, but there are also a lot who don't because they decide that they want to stay at the boards or that public service might not be right for them. Public service is what it's all about, and it definitely gives you, I think, access to, let's say, officials that you normally, you know, wouldn't interface with, you know, whether it's the fire department or the police department that comes every meeting to give their update on, you know, what's happening with crime in the neighborhood. It's access to those people. Yeah, every board has a report from the police and a report from the fire. Every board has representatives from the council members or the council member themselves. Every board has a mayor's representative, a representative from a department. So we also have representatives from the state legislature, senator, and the house. We also have people that come from our federal government, our federal representatives and the senators. So everybody is there, at least a representative. So it gives you access to government. So if there's anybody out there listening and they want to join a neighborhood board, what do they have to do? Uh, They can just get on our website, check out Neighborhood Boards Honolulu, any form of neighborhood boards or NCO. They'll get to the site, and as soon as you get to the site, you'll see all of the stuff about the boards, the meeting times, also running for a seat. That was Loa Yoninaka, Executive Secretary of the Honolulu Neighborhood Board Commission. He was talking to us about the creation of the board system. It started some 50 years ago, and also the upcoming election, calling all candidates. Look for links to find out more on the conversation page of our website later today. have to go now, but up tomorrow, we continue to talk about broadband. This time, we hear more from Lieutenant Governor Sylvia Luke. Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online by searching for the Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.